0: Please turn to Luke chapter 23 with me. Well, Luke chapter 23, we're continuing to look at the cross, and I'd encourage you to stand if you're able to in honor of God as we read his word together. Luke chapter 23, we're looking at verses uh, 32 through 43, Luke chapter 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the cross and for the opportunity to to pay closer attention to it than we might otherwise might, to to look at the story and, and to be renewed in our understanding of it, to be strengthened in our understanding of you, to be encouraged to know you more deeply in the story of how you reconciled us to yourself. I pray that every person here this morning would look at this. And as we look at this text, we'd be drawn to you, look more closely at you, see your love for us and the story of of how that, that love can be received through faith in your son Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Christopher Hitchens was a prolific writer, a provocative commentator and an avowed atheist. He passed away in December of 2011. As he was dying, he worried that people would think that he made some sort of deathbed conversion. He was worried that people would claim that he had made a deathbed conversion as well, and so he contacted his friends, and as he talked with them, as he prepared to die, he he warned them that some might say that he had made some deathbed profession of faith and some deity, and he he urged them to refute such claims. Jeffrey Goldberg is a writer for The Atlantic, and, and he wrote this on The Atlantic's website before Hitchens passed away. He wrote, Hitchens said that if information emerged that he had at some late stage made a statement of faith or religious confession, such as, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, or Muhammad, peace be upon him, as a messenger of God, his friends were to make it, Known that it was not the true Hitchens doing the confessing. Goldberg writes, one time he told me, the entity making such a statement might be a raving, terrified person whose cancer has spread to the brain. I can't guarantee that such an entity wouldn't make such a ridiculous remark but no one recognizable as myself would ever make such a ridiculous remark. I find what Hitchens said there very intriguing. Hitchens acknowledges that there might be some sort of biological process that takes place that that renders his brain incapable of rightly understanding reality, and he might make some sort of crazy statement, he says, or he looks at statements that others have made as they've approached death, as they've feared death, and he he looks at that and he says, well, the people who've made those professions aren't really themselves. And if if I came to a point where I was terrified and and death was about to overtake me and I I made some sort of confession, I, I might do that, but that wouldn't be the real me. This is the real me in my control of my rational mind. And so if I came to death's door and I I made some sort of statement, that wouldn't be the real me. I find that very intriguing. And for many people, I think it's completely backward. For many, I don't know how many, but for many... I believe that it is, as God allows them to suffer affliction, for many, as as God allows them to suffer affliction, they come to understand for the first time who they truly are. As God forces our our pride and our self-sufficiency, our arrogance to be stripped away we're confronted with the reality that we are hopeless and helpless. And God in His grace for some people at the end of their lives allow them for the first time to see their desperate need for something, someone beyond themselves, and allow, He allows them in His grace to see Himself and the need that they have for a relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. So I think Hitchens here had it exactly wrong for some people. The false us is the the, the us that sees ourselves as as self-sufficient, as capable in and of ourselves for all that we need. The true self is the self that realizes that we are hopeless and helpless in need of a sovereign God to save and rescue us. The story that we're looking at this morning... It's a story of of one who came to that point in his life and saw his need for a Savior and turned from his sin and placed his faith by God's grace in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it was through affliction, through a, a time of turmoil that he was able to do so. We've been looking at the cross, and last week we looked at the cross from the perspective of the daughters of Jerusalem. And I I told you, as as Luke painted this picture of all these people following Jesus to the cross, and as we we came to the cross, that there would be all these different perspectives on the cross that we would come to to, to look at and Luke would draw our attention to. We saw last week that the story of the cross is the, the foundational story of our faith there is no story that is that is more important to our faith. And it's a story that each of us in this room must understand and continue to apply in our lives. If you've come in these doors this morning and you have never heard anything about God or, or Jesus Christ, it's a story you need. And this foundational story is simple. Any person in here this morning can come in and hear the story of the cross. Of and hear about how Jesus Christ died on the cross for them, died in their place, suffered the wrath of God for them, lived this perfect life that allowed him to be the perfect sacrifice for us, any person can hear that story of Jesus Christ dying for them, being raised from the dead, and any person in here can place their faith in Jesus Christ this morning and be reconciled to God. It is a foundational story, and it is simple. But it's also profound. The holiest person in here, the person who walked through the doors this morning and has been walking with the Lord for for decades upon decades and uh, has a close relationship with God, that person, as they have come in this morning and sat down in, in their chair, that person needs the message of the cross. It's a foundational story that is profound, and for the rest of our lives on into eternity we will continue to understand and apply the message of the cross in our lives. Each one of us, as we walk out the doors this morning, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, is going to need to take the message of the cross, the story of God's grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to to Him through Jesus Christ. Each of us is going to need to take that message and apply it in whatever we face today. My uh, son and I were... Uh, sitting on the, at the table and I was kind of looking through the Gospel Coalition's blog and I came across an article on this new uh, prosperity health and wealth gospel reality TV series about preachers. My son and I started watching the little preview trailer for this new series on health and wealth gospel preachers in L.A. And as we're watching it, my son said, Whoa, wait, Dad, wait, stop. what he just said isn't right. Stop the video. I said, "Well, wh- what do you mean it's not right?" So, well, he he just said that 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 preacher just said that a pastor he said a pastor has to live a perfect life. A pastor has to live a perfect life, and my son looked at me and he said, uh, "I don't think that's true, Dad." I said, "Well, what makes you think that, son?" He just kind of looked at me, (laughs) as if he knew a pastor, perhaps, that didn't live a perfect life. And I don't think he was thinking about one of our elders, or Ben, or Mike, or Kent. I think he was thinking about his dad. He said, Dad, I I don't think a pastor lives a perfect life. (laughs) I I said, well, what, what do they need? He goes, I think they still need Jesus. He's absolutely right. Every single one of us needs the message of the cross, and we continue to need the message of the cross. And and what we're going to see this morning is that in in the story of of this person, uh, this criminal, uh, affliction was a tool that God used to to shatter his pride, to help him see his need, repent of his sins, and and believe the gospel. And that's true for each of us. What we're going to do as we look through this this story and see these different perspectives on the cross is we're going to kind of divide this passage into six sections and the first 3 sections are going to deal with some perspectives on the cross that help us see the purpose of the cross the reason for the cross what Christ is accomplishing on the cross then the next 3 sections that we look at are going to look at some res- are going to help us see some responses and some perspectives on the cross that help us understand how we're saved through the cross. So the first three sections are going to help us see the purpose as they set the stage, and then the next three sections are going to help us see how we're saved, how we receive forgiveness, how we are reconciled, brought into relationship with God. Well, let's look at the first section, the first perspective here. We see the setting, okay? The setting in verses 32 and 33. Luke writes, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And the perspective here that Luke has given us is he wants us to know that Jesus isn't crucified alone. He wants to draw our attention in the setting to where Jesus is and who's with him. There are soldiers with Jesus, perhaps four of them. There's two criminals, two doers of wrong that are with Jesus. And they're all led to be put to death. And they come to a place called the skull. It's also called Golgotha. That's the Aramaic word for skull. Uh, Our word Calvary is from the Latin word for skull. It's this place outside the city wall near a garden that has a rock formation that kind of looks like a skull. And and this is where Jesus and these two others are crucified. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning, and the events that we're looking at this morning occur from 9 to noon, the first three hours of the crucifixion. It's interesting too, isn't it? Look at verse 33, that Luke very simply says that this is where Jesus is crucified. There they crucified him. What's interesting to me about that is that he doesn't go into to gruesome detail. We know that the crucifixion of Jesus is a horrific act. The person who's condemned to be crucified carries their crossbeam to the place where they're going to be crucified, and they're attached to that crossbeam. And sometimes uh, condemned were simply tied to this, this wood, but we know that in Jesus' case he was nailed to this, this beam. The beam is then placed on a notch on the cross, and the, the victim of crucifixion slowly suffocates. But what I find interesting is that Luke doesn't deal with the graphic details In an extensive way, in fact, none of the gospel writers get too involved in the the goriness of this death of Jesus. It seems to me, this this is what I think is happening here, I, I think you and I are to know and be aware of the horror of the crucifixion, but the aim... Of our meditation on the cross is not to be on the, the gruesome details, although they they are horrific. We're to be aware of how horrific it is, but we're not to to, de- to to dwell on the details themselves. Instead, our focus is to be on the one who's enduring the suffering. I don't know if that distinction makes sense, but in other words, our our goal in our meditation as we think about the cross isn't to think about every gory detail, but our goal in our meditation as we think about the cross is to think upon the God who suffered the humiliation and the horror of the cross. A few years ago, that movie The Passion of the Christ came out. And I can remember going to the movie and sitting in the theater and several other staff members were there and uh, the movie was, was incredibly powerful and intense. But the details were so gruesome, you know, the movie received a, an R rating because of how graphic the details were. Now, I, I believe it was very well researched and the his, very historical in the, the ways in which it portrayed crucifixion. After the movie, we got up out of the theater and no one said a word to one another and we, we just kind of thought about what we'd seen. I, I've never seen it again. It was, it was too intense. And I believe for a a Christian, for one who understands what happened on the cross and who was enduring that that suffering, I I believe it can be helpful to to think about that. But my fear sometimes in in depictions of the crucifixion or in talking through what took place on the cross, sometimes our our fixation can be on the details themselves instead of the one who endured the horror of the cross. Here's what C.S. Lewis said as as he looked at the cross. He said, He said, As he sees the cross, he says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already seeing seeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops. The repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. So as we think about the setting, and as we think about the cross, yes, this is a humiliating, horrific event. In fact, this is so humiliating, Gentiles didn't even use the word crucifixion. One time a Roman actor portrayed a crucifixion in in mime, and it was scandalous. People called for him to be crucified for even portraying such an event. This is a horrific, humiliating event. The gospel writers, as they talk about it, want us to see not so much the individual details, they don't want those to be our meditation, but on the one who is enduring the humiliation and horror of the cross and why he's doing it. Because God loves us and wants to reconcile us to himself. It's the purpose. That's the setting. Let's look at the Christ The Christ in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide His garments. And so as the soldiers are dividing up His garments among them, Jesus utters this, this first saying from the cross. And in the Gospel writings we have seven different recorded phrases that Jesus said. This is the first one; it sets the tone for what he's trying to accomplish here. And he he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, what does Jesus mean here? A couple things I want to talk about. This is a very difficult phrase sometimes for us to understand. So let me just share some things that I think are taking place here that help us understand the setting and the background and the purpose of the cross. Number one, notice this. Number one, notice, these are words spoken to the Father. When was the last time we heard Jesus praying? It was back in the garden, wasn't it? And in the garden, as he looks forward to the cross and the humiliation and the suffering that he's about to endure, he asks the Father if it's possible to remove this cup from him, but not my will, Jesus says, but yours be done. Now the will of the Father has been confirmed. And it's the will of the Father to crush the Son. And as the Son continues to go through this time of agony and affliction, He doesn't say, Father, what happened? He continues to entrust Himself to the Father. He continues to love the Father. He continues to beseech the Father. And here he beseeches the Father to forgive. Secondly, notice this. What's happening here is a model for what he has instructed the disciples to do. Remember back in Luke 6, he talks about forgiving your enemies, and, and loving your enemies. Now here, as he encounters his enemies, as he is on the cross, in the midst of this, this persecution, in the midst of this suffering, he, his call is for forgiveness. Forgiveness means uh, literally to, to send away, to cancel a debt. And as God the Son is on the cross, surrounded by his enemy, his call is Forgiveness. This call is for forgiveness for these who are involved in his death. A third thing that I want you to notice as we think about what Jesus is saying here, a third thing is Jesus' prayer doesn't mean that people aren't responsible for their sin. If you go to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2, some of the same people who are at the cross or involved in Jesus' death Hear Peter's sermon. Peter is preaching after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he he concludes his first sermon. He says in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the people hear what they've done. They realize what's taken place, and it says in Acts that their, their hearts are are, are, are cut, they're cut to the heart, and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? And Peter says, Repent. Repent. There's a continued need for repentance, even though Jesus has prayed for their forgiveness. So, fourth thing that I want you to see about Jesus' words here not only is he praying to the Father, not only is he modeling what forgiveness looks like, not only does, even though he praises not only do the people still need to repent. The fourth thing that I want you to see here is that there is, I believe, both a general and a specific way in which Jesus' prayer is answered. There's a general and a specific way in which Jesus' prayer is answered. I mean, think about what's taking place here. As the Roman soldiers nail Jesus' hands to a cross, as people allow this to take place, I'm about to see the mocking and the scoffing, these people are involved in killing God the Son. Can you imagine a more horrific act than the creature killing the holy god so what we see is jesus very generally is fulfilling what was said what was said of him in isaiah 53:12 that as, as he dies he as he suffers he makes intercession for the transgressors and so there's this there's this way in which jesus's prayer i believe is answered in a general sense he's fulfilling prophecy and the people who are surrounding him aren't immediately obliterated He says on the basis of their lack of understanding, uh, he asks for forgiveness. That's what the Christ here is, is asking for. But I also think there's a specific mercy that takes place as Christ prays. There's a specific way in which his prayer is answered. And what happens, as I believe, partly as a result of Christ's prayer here, is that those who are currently involved in in, in persecuting him and and, and causing his death eventually are saved and received God's forgiveness. Acts 4.4 talks about how thousands are added to the church as a result of the preaching of the gospel. Acts 2 proclaims that. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says the Word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so here's what I want you to see as we're looking at the setting and the Christ and this, this background, the purpose of the cross in these first three sections here. The purpose of the cross is, is, is forgiveness, is reconciliation, salvation, deliverance. Remember as we saw the daughters of Jerusalem last week, what happened? Jesus turns and tells them that judgment is coming, that they have a need to be reconciled to God, and, and as they see this sorrowful event, they're misunderstanding why it's sorrowful. And now, we see that Jesus on the cross is working to bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, salvation. A third section here, third group that we look at is the people. Look at verse 35, the first part of the verse 35. The people stood by watching. The people stood by watching. Just notice this. In the other gospel writers' accounts, we we see examples of others involved in mocking Jesus among the people. But Luke is just drawing our attention among all those who are at the cross, just to the people who are watching. who are trying to figure out exactly what's taking place. So as we look at these these first three sections, we see that the the focus of the cross is forgiveness. The purpose of the cross is reconciliation. And and as Jesus is crucified next to these criminals, his focus is on forgiveness, on reconciliation, on deliverance of people from the wrath that he's talked about just a few verses earlier. As we see, as C.S. Lewis put it, as we see the Christ on the cross, we see love himself the very image of love let's look at the next three sections as we look at these next three sections we we see how we're saved how we receive this this salvation this reconciliation that god desires to provide for us first of all let's look at the rulers and as we look at at each of these next three sections you're going to see three things take place with each of these groups First of all, you're going to see mocking. Someone's going to, to mock, to, to scoff, to make fun of Jesus. Then you're going to see some sort of call for salvation on the part of each of these people. They're going to tell Jesus to save. And then the third thing you're going to see in, in, that, in each section is some sort of if statement, some sort of, okay, save if this is true. So let's look at the rulers. What do we see? Do we see mocking, number one? Yes. What happens? The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. So there's their number one, mocking? Yes, absolutely. Is there a call to save? Yes. Now, they're not saying it to, directly to Jesus, but as they're at the cross, there's people surrounding the cross, and the rulers say, look, according to everybody else, he was saving all these people. He was delivering, he was heal- he was doing all this amazing stuff. Let's see him save himself, huh? If, third thing here, if, the if conditional statement, if he's the Christ, if he's the the chosen one, if he's the one that God has chosen to bring about reconciliation, to bring about salvation, save himself. Come on. There's tragic irony the scene isn't there as Jesus brings about salvation those who are in need of salvation call for him to save and yet don't receive the salvation the Pharisee the rulers here don't understand the nature of the Messiah there's a, a misconception here they miss their chance in their minds, he, Jesus is cursed. Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-three curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And so the Messiah is 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 not this guy. It's it's tragic irony. It's missed opportunity. I don't know if any of our young people here can relate to this, but I, I can remember being young and in high school, and there were these. Uh, maybe this wasn't. Maybe this is a friend of mine. Um, a friend of mine uh, could remember being in high school and, and uh, wanting to wanting some like a maybe maybe uh, a a girl to like him. Okay, and there would be kind of a conversation that might take place, and uh, this young man, my friend, would realize um, I don't think that girl thinks I'm as amazing as I think she is, or as amazing as I think I am. And maybe you can remember feeling this way whenever someone hasn't returned your friendship the way that you like. There's this consolation. Well, I guess they're missing out. Missed opportunity. Look at me now. There's missed opportunity. And and there's never been a a greater missed opportunity than a tragic missed opportunity than, than what takes place here. Among the rulers, here's the Messiah, and, and they're in front of the Messiah. And the Messiah is bringing about salvation at this moment. He's, he's working to reconcile people to God. And ironically, they say, hey, why didn't he save someone? When he's doing it at that exact moment. I, I can't imagine a more tragic response to the cross that's the rulers. Number two, we, we see the soldiers, and the soldiers respond in similar fashion. Is there mocking? Yes, there's mocking. Look at verse 36. It says, the soldiers also mocked him, and they, they come up, and the part of their mocking, they're offering, they're offering him this, this sour wine. And they also have, number two, this, this idea of, of salvation, save yourself, and they have an if statement, save yourself if you are the king of the Jews. So, like the rulers, they mock. Like the rulers, there's this call to save, this call for salvation. And the rulers said, if it's true that you're the Christ, you'll save. And the Roman soldiers say, if it's true that you're a king, you'll save. The rulers had a perception about how the Messiah should bring about deliverance. These Gentile soldiers have a belief about how a a king should operate. A king is one who is powerful. A king is one who crucifies others, not allows himself to be crucified. And as they look at at Christ on on the cross, they recognize in their minds, "This this is not a king. The inscription above him says, and it's in Latin, it's in Aramaic, it's in Greek, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And This guy's no king. The soldiers miss what's taking place here. Two examples. Rulers, soldiers. Of those who need God's forgiveness and don't receive it because they don't understand what's taking place. Next we see the criminals. In verses 39 through 43. The criminals. Verse 39 this first criminal, and and we know that both criminals at the very beginning, both criminals continue this pattern at at, at first. But Luke draws our attention just to one of them. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, and that literally means blasphemed him. And he said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So again, there's mocking, there's a call for salvation, and he says, say, it's a demand, save not just yourself, but save all of us here. And the if statement, the condition is, if it's true that you're the Christ, aren't you the Christ, he says. He continues the pattern. So rulers, soldiers, criminals, all of them are in need of God's salvation, the forgiveness that Jesus is working to help them receive, and none of them receive it. None of them receive the salvation that Jesus is working to provide at this moment. None of them receive it. None of them understand it. And then we see the second criminal. We know that he was involved in mocking Jesus at first, and we're not sure what takes place, but perhaps he sees the way that Jesus responds. Perhaps he's confronted here as he faces death with reality for the first time, and And he responds differently. He breaks the pattern. He looks at the cross for the first time that Luke tells us, if anyone looking at the cross correctly, look at what he says. And in fact, as you see his response, what you're going to see is the right way to receive salvation. What you're going to see is the right way to receive the benefits that the cross provides. And my encouragement to you is to look at the response of this second wrongdoer and to see that this is the way that each person in this room should respond to the message of the cross. I told you before, this story is a foundational story for our faith. Apart from the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no salvation through him. And the salvation that we need that comes through faith in Jesus Christ is not just an initial salvation that brings us into relationship with God. It's a continual need we have to place our faith in Jesus Christ who suffered in our place and rose from the dead. The message of the cross is the message that each of us needs and And in the response of the criminal, we see what we need to do as we respond rightly to the cross. Here's four things I want you to see as we look at him. Number one, fear God. Fear God. What does he say? He looks at at this other guy and and he rebukes him. He he says, what you're doing is wrong. He says, don't you fear God since you're under the the same sentence of, of condemnation? As this criminal is confronted with, with his own mortality and, and the, the place where he is in, in life and death, he, he realizes that there should be a, a fear. And he looks at the other guy and says, Hey, aren't you afraid? Now, Christopher Hitchens that I talked about at the beginning of our time this morning He looks at at people who are fearing death and he sees them as as weak and people who aren't able to respond rightly to reality. But what we see here is that fear of God is an essential characteristic of one who's going to rightly understand the message of the cross. Without fear of God, you cannot understand the cross correctly. That's why Jesus tells the daughters of Jerusalem, hey, you need to not weep for me, but weep for yourselves because you're in danger. When, When I talk to people about their their story of how they became a Christian I'm I'm intrigued by how many of them at, at young ages were, were told something about the reality of hell about the reality that there's a an, an eternal condemnation for those who reject God and how God uses that that story of the reality of, of hell and condemnation uses that truth in a person's heart to cause them to to fear Him, to say, this this isn't what I desire. Fear of God, we see it in in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a a fury of, of fire that will consume the adversaries. He says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The person who comes to the message of the cross rightly, unsaved, saved, continuing in God's grace comes to the cross with a healthy fear of God, a fear of God's displeasure, a, a fear of offending the holy God. If you're going to rightly respond to the cross, you must first fear God. A second thing we see here in this criminal is we see that you and I must acknowledge and repent of sin. We must acknowledge and repent of sin. The criminal Looks at this guy. He says, "Don't you fear God?" And then he says, "We're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed, justly, were receiving the due reward of our deeds." As this criminal looks at his life, he says, "I deserve to be here. The punishment that I'm receiving is is a just fruit of what I've done." There's an acknowledgement of his need for forgiveness. And as he thinks about fearing God, it causes him to acknowledge his sin. You know, I think one of the problems that we face in our Christian circles, and I, th- I think about particularly in a relationship to my kids and the environment in which they live. They live in a very sheltered environment in some ways. I think one of the hard things for a person who's lived a relative, like a comparatively good life, a hard thing for them is to understand the reality of their own sin. I'm no criminal. I don't deserve the death penalty. And as we look at the cross and Jesus' call for forgiveness and all the different perspectives of the cross, what we should all see, that's what we sung earlier, or what uh, Spencer sang earlier in that special song? I, I crucified the Lamb. I am responsible. I'm culpable for the death of Christ. My uh, sixth grade daughter is, is just finished sixth grade, and, and she's going through a, a, a Bible study with with some other uh, young ladies from the youth group and stuff. And one of the they're, they're doing a book on on selfishness, and I was talking with her about what she's learning and. She was talking to me about um, how, how selfishness is at, at the root of, of so many of our sins, and and how at the root of our our rebellion to God is a desire to worship self instead of worship God. We're kind of talking through some of those things, and I thought, you know, that's what a even a even a pretty sheltered sixth grade girl needs to understand, right? From each of our heart, there's a selfishness that wants to worship self instead of worship God. And if we're going to rightly respond to the cross as we walk out of these doors this morning, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 55 years, we have to acknowledge and repent of our sin. We fear God. We acknowledge our sin as the criminal does here as we think about the cross. And the third thing is we place our faith in Christ. We place our faith and our, our trust in, in Christ. He says to Jesus here. Uh, this is a man who's done nothing wrong. And and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a, a faith that he has here. And here's a remarkable thing to me. Uh, notice that the, fair, the, the rulers look at the cross, and as they look at the cross, they see a a suffering Messiah, and a suffering Messiah can't save in their minds. And so they mock him, why don't you save yourself? They they, they tell the people, why didn't he save himself since he saved others? The soldiers, in their minds, a ruler, a a king can't be powerless. A king must be powerful, and so this guy can't save anybody. And they mock him, save yourself. The criminal says, look, if he's the Messiah, he'd, he'd, he'd save us and save himself. This guy, think about it, think about it. This guy is on a cross, next to a guy, on a cross, currently dying. All human logic says, this guy can't do nothing. And what does he do? He places his trust in him he recognizes there's something about Jesus that's different. He says, hey, Jesus, in the future when you come into your kingdom against all human logic at this moment, remember me. He places his faith in Christ. And then the fourth thing is he requests God's grace. His request here is is for Jesus to remember him. It's it's a general request. It's some, some future time. Sometime in the future, when you come to your kingdom, remember me. And this phrase was a phrase that would be found on uh, gravestones in the first century. It, it meant, hey, it was kind of like a, a prayer to a deity. In the afterlife, remember me. Think about me. Remember my soul. And, and this, this criminal is, is saying to Jesus, my request is I'm placing my trust in you someday in the future, some you know, I don't know when. When you come to your kingdom, remember me. Remember me in the afterlife. Allow me to, to, to participate in the resurrection of the righteous. He fears God. He not only fears God, but he He acknowledges his sin. He he places his faith in, in Christ and he requests God's grace. And that's what each of us must do if we are to receive the benefits of the cross. And here's the cool thing. This person who has lived a life worthy of capital punishment receives God's grace. There's nothing he did there's nothing he did on that cross to, to merit Jesus' forgiveness. He, he couldn't say, Jesus, uh, remember me, and you know, after you save me, I'm going to go do some really good things for you. He couldn't demonstrate his repentance through works, and, and I think this tells us the essence of what repentance is. It's this, this heart change, it's this decision to turn away from sin, turn to, to faith in Christ. There's, there's nothing, zilch, nada, zip, that this guy could do for Jesus. It's by that act of placing his trust in Jesus alone that he receives salvation, that he receives forgiveness. And listen to what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As we look at that word paradise in the Old Testament, New Testament, it means this place where God's kingdom is being manifested. He's talking about heaven. And whereas the criminal asks for God's grace in some future time, jesus is specific no no no. today today you're receiving salvation so much we could say there but the essence of of what we need to glean from this is that god's forgiveness that's being accomplished there on the cross is readily available for all who would ask to receive it and would trust in jesus The rulers, the soldiers, the one criminal, none of them receive it at that moment, even though in this scene, dripping with irony, they're they're talking about salvation. A criminal, with his last, some of his last words on earth, confesses Christ and receives salvation. Salvation again why I think Hitchens is exactly wrong about deathbed conversions and why so many of us should have hope for those whom we love who've heard the gospel and not responded to it before death that, that we know of. You see, as a person is by God's grace afflicted, their need is revealed if you had been one of the family members of this criminal and had asked about his status before God and would he be part of the resurrection of the righteous, and you'd asked about this guy years after he was crucified and talked to his family, like, no, nah, that guy. He was crucified, he was a terrible guy, and yet he was a person that received eternal life. Affliction can be a tool that God uses to strip us away of our pride, of our our self-sufficiency, to allow us to see our hopelessness and helplessness so that we can turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation and receive eternal life. Every single person in here, when they walk out of this room this morning, needs to be reliant upon Jesus Christ because of his work on the cross to receive his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your cross, the salvation that we can have through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for your grace in our lives. You would demonstrate through us what it looks like to have a relationship with you that's growing that we're, we're continuing to be sanctified as we place our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.